All right. Well, Blake said we are in the third week of our series. Uh, He's off by about a month. We're in the seventh week of our summer scripture series. Um, It may have said it wrong on the on the screen. I don't know. Who knows? Um, But today we have quite a goal in front of us. All right. We are hoping to finish chapter two of Colossians here in our seventh week of, of this particular series. And so we're hoping to finish chapter two or at least touch on the verses of, of, of chapter two. And, and so if you're just joining us, we've been walking through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae verse by verse. That's what we've been doing over the last seven weeks. So if you're just joining us, you're coming in sort of right in the middle uh, of, of what's going on. Like um, it's really not in the middle. Like I said, we're just halfway through uh, really at the very beginning of, of chapter two. We've still got a, a couple more chapters to go, and then we're also going to cover Philemon. And so, um, but you're, you're coming in right here in the middle, and so that's awesome. Uh, you get to pick this up and, and walk along with us. Um, because ultimately, we want to see all that Paul had to say to the Colossians, and we want to also, in, in, in conjunction, hear all that God has to say to us. And so as, as we're reading what, what Paul had to say to the Colossians and what God has to say to us, uh, then we're going to read through this text and we're going to try to glean everything we possibly can from it. Now, again, this is broad overview. I, w- I mean, we could almost do like a full sermon on just, just every one or two verses. Uh, we could probably spend all this time on here because there's so much just amazing, amazing content here for us to read. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Paul's in prison when he's writing this letter. It's, it's considered one of the prison epistles. Um, and so he's, he's never been to this church. He's never met these people. He, he, he's beside himself with love and, and, and with hope for this new congregation, though. And we talked about, we've talked about already how incredible that is, that he's never met these people. He doesn't know them. He's never visited them. He didn't help plant or start this church, but yet he is praying for them to the point of exhaustion we read about, I think, last week or the week before. He, he's, he's praying over them to the point of exhaustion because he is so uh, just, just desperate to see God do an amazing work and move in their midst. And, and he's writing to encourage them in their new faith, and he also wants to warn them of the dangers of prevalent false teaching. And so that's where we actually pick up uh, right here at, at the, the middle to end of chapter 2. Uh, he wants the church to know, and I think God wants us to know, that it's easy to be led astray. But there's a fix for that. And the fix for that is the fullness in Christ. The fullness in Christ. That's our, that's our title for this morning. If you're taking notes and you want to write that down, the fullness in Christ. You see, we think, we think that we live in an age where we can easily pick out the false teachers. We can easily see the things that are wrong and that will lead us away from the truth of the gospel. And we honestly, I think like in this country, think we're pretty safe. But, but just as Paul was warning the church at Colossae, I think, I think God wants me to warn the church in the theater here this morning. It is easy to be led astray. It is easy to fall into uh, the wrong thinking and the wrong ideas. There are people out there that want to lead you away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The enemy wants to lead you away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And see, here's the thing, and we've talked about this over, over the course of the weeks too. The world presents to us a plausible and alluring moral and ethical position on certain things. But, but you have to ask, is this the truth from the word of God? Sure, it might sound good, and everybody seems to be jumping on board, but is it actually biblical? To the Colossians, they were facing a blend of Gnosticism and historical Judaism, which we'll, we'll talk about in just a moment. So if those are big words that you don't understand, that's okay. We're going to cover that in just a moment. Um, they're, they're, that was their false teaching. It had shades of truth. 
it, it recognized God. It sounded good and it was, it was comfortable. And today, we're faced with, with other religions. Yep. We're, we're faced with cults. We're, we're faced with faiths that disguise themselves as Protestant Christianity, but honestly are so far from it. We're, we're faced with all of these things, but, but however, here's what I believe is our false teacher, and, and they faced a lot of different stuff as well, but, but, but just as they kind of, Paul had this one thing in mind. He was really combating sort of this one ideology, this one thought, and, and it was this, this, this Greek Gnosticism sort of blended and mixed with, with historical Judaism. <clears throat> and so I think there's really one, one main thing that we as believers, as, as followers of Christ, one thing that we'll face and, and it's this idea, uh, it's, it's this thought process, which you may have heard me talk about before, called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, this phrase was coined in 2005 by Dr. Al Mohler. He's now the, the president uh, of, of, a, of a Southern Baptist seminary. And this was in 2005 when he coined this phrase, and it was specifically written about teenagers at that time. <clears throat> well, it's 2019. And those teenagers are now adults with kids of their own. And they're the dominant voices on TV and, and, and in, in government and in the public sphere and even in the church. And so, so I just want to hit this real quick. I don't want to spend a lot of time here because I want to get to the word of God, but I do believe that, that just as Paul was warning the church at Colossae, I think it's important for, for me to kind of warn us and just lay this out for us a little bit. So, so moralistic therapeutic deism Big word. Let me break it down into five quick things that sort of sum it up. All right. Here, here's the first thing. God exists. A, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. All right. That's the that's kind of the first ideal of of this moralistic therapeutic deism. This this sounds good, right? Like we can get on board with this. That makes sense. However, it isn't limited to God. It says a God. It allows for this inclusivity. Of, of other religions or religious sects. Also, how he created the world, how the world was created, is up for debate, but moralistic therapeutic deism does acknowledge a higher power, a creator, and so it sounds good enough where we can say, you know what, wait, I, I can kind of buy into that a little bit. Like that, that lines up. It's kind of like the Venn diagram. There's a little overlap there in, in what I believe and, and what this believes. And so, so I can, I can kind of fall into that, maybe into that middle ground, into that, that one small sliver. And so there's some, there's a little bit of truth in there. We do believe that there is a God and we do believe that he was the, the creator. And so it goes on. Here's the second point, the second tenet of, of this ideal. Uh, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible in most world religions. Well, they invoke the Bible right there. The Bible is, is invoked. And again, there's, there's, some, there's some truth here. There's seemingly the golden rule, right? We're taught that growing up, right? There, there's some truth. Be nice to others. The word tells us to, to, to love one another and to outdo one another in kindness, right? This, there's little slivers of truth. And as we're going to see, that's, that's part of the process. That's part of the, the lore. That's part of the deception is to put nuggets of truth in there. Uh, that, that kind of begin to break down our barriers and, and then we move on and we start to see some of the things that are really more deceptive. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. <coughs> All right, so we're starting to veer a little bit because this is not the goal of life, not even close. 
But here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about this with me, church. It sounds good, right? It sounds good. I mean, I do like to be happy. And, and it would be nice if I felt really good about myself all the time and I felt like I had some power to, to change my surroundings and my circumstances all on my own, all by myself, because, hey, it's my life. And I'm only limited by my imagination. This all sounds pretty good. I think most of us in this room would agree it's not biblical, but who wouldn't want this? Here's the fourth thing. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Now, here's, here's where I see, you know, the first two kind of lure you in. There's some shades of truth there. The, th- the third one, I think, kind of attacks our vanity, our ego, and, it, and it's something that we just want. Now, here's where we get trapped because we feel like this is, this is probably most of us. A lot of times, us as believers fall into this particular one. Right? We can understand this. For some of us, it's our default. Like, we only approach God when we need him or when it's convenient for us. But moralistic therapeutic deism would say it's okay, though, because God doesn't even really want to be that involved. He really wants you to figure things out. He's not overbearing or controlling. He's just casually there if you need anything. That's a cool guy. God's a cool dude. I can get on board with this. Number five. Good people go to heaven when they die. And here we arrive at the final sentiment of the false teaching. The final sentiment of the the false teaching that, again, sounds really nice, but it flies in the face of everything that Christ came and died for. It's, it's, It's just plain wrong. Doesn't matter if you know Jesus or not. Jesus loves us and would not send us to hell. Doesn't matter what religion you are, if you're even religious at all. We're all on the same journey just on a different path. Some of us go through Christianity to, to get there. Some, some of us go through Buddhism to get there. Others go through Jehovah's Witness or whatever else to get there. But we all arrive there eventually. It's the mindset. Moralistic. Live a good life. Be a good person. Therapeutic. It's about me and my self-worth and my self-actualization. Deism. A higher power plays a very small role when needed. Why am I telling you this? Because it's what Paul did. He warned the Colossians of what they were facing. He warned them of what was being taught and how it might influence and impact them. And and I want to do the same for you. You see, moralistic therapeutic deism doesn't have a home office somewhere. It's, it's, It's not a denomination. It's not funded. It isn't organized. It just is. It's a teaching and a way of thinking that mixes a little truth with a little religion with some secular morals and a splash of personal ego to create something that looks good and it sounds good, but it will not lead to eternal life. And church, hundreds of thousands of Christians are walking around today buying into this, unsuspectingly without realizing it. And yes, I said Christians, because it's possible for seemingly healthy believers to be led astray. It happens all the time. I know that. Paul knew that, and so he issued this warning, and he gave them a safeguard against spiritual seduction. Let's read in verse 8, chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Let me first say this. Paul was not putting down philosophy. Let me just say that right away. Philosophy simply means the love of wisdom. Everything that has to do with the theories about God, the world, and the meaning of human life was called philosophy. 
All right, what Paul was warning against was a dangerous philosophy made up of both elements of Judaism and Greek Gnosticism. Now, I realize that I've been talking about Gnosticism on and off for the last like six or seven weeks, and, and I have yet to show you how to spell it in case you were taking notes or just curious. So here you go. It's on the screen, Greek Gnosticism. There it is. So in case you're wondering, that, that's what it looks like. That's how you spell it in case you want to like do more research on your own or look a little bit more into it. I've been saying this word, and I, and I just thought about it like, like last night or, or whatever, I was thinking like, you know what, I don't know if they really know how to spell this or what this looks like because it's spelled kind of weird. So there it is for you. Uh, and and here's, what, here's what happens. So Greek Gnosticism, it taught, let me, let me just give you the, there's so much more to it and, and you could go and dig into it if you want, but let me just give you the flyby. Uh, it taught that a person must work his or her way up a long series of lesser gods called emanations. All right, there were there were there were things that presented themselves, these lesser gods that sort of presented themselves, these emanations, before reaching the ultimate God. All right, so that's that's kind of the process of Greek Gnosticism, and there's there's a lot of beliefs there and a lot of other things, but but that's just the main one of the main processes. So here is where false Jewish teachers combined Hebrew rites and and ascetic regulations, like these regulations where you have to de- de- deprive yourself and, and take these things away from yourself. So these uh, ascetic regulations with their philosophy as a better way to move up the spiritual ladder. It was all kind of mysterious and complicated, but mainly Paul realized that it was deadly because it mixed a little of the truth of Hebrew religion with, with the interesting and enticing mysteries of Eastern mysticism and, and Greek philosophy. And so it's mixing all these things together. And, and, and the false teachers would recognize the budding Christian movement and the ideas behind it they they would they would they would call it out hey this is good this is cool this is neat and and they would recognize it and give it some validation but but then they would present all of this all this other stuff the climbing the ladder of lesser gods and and combining these hebrew rituals and rites they would present it as something more right it would be kind of this like extra this bonus it was something that would elevate the ignorant colossian church from their crude baby-like faith over here to the truly deep things of God. And some took the bait. Why? Well, let's look real quick at what Paul says in this verse. First, it was deceptive. Empty, it sounded great, but it was empty deceit, this verse says. F.F. F. Bruce, he was a, uh, a biblical scholar, and he said this about the Gnostic philosophies. The spiritual confidence tricksters against whom they are put on their guard did not inoculate a godless or immoral way of life. It's a fancy way of saying they, they were good people, right? These false teachers were really, really, really good people. He goes on, he says, the error of such teaching would have been immediately obvious. If they were bad people, we would have known. It would have, it would have been glaringly obvious. Their teaching was rather a blend of the highest elements of natural religion known to Judaism and paganism. So those trying to lead the Colossians astray were not bad people if we were to view them through a moral lens, okay? In fact, they probably did better at at being a Christian than many of the new believers that they knew. And and on top of that, they they were sincere. They were bought into what they were selling, they were deceived because th- this way of thinking and living was deceptive. Empty deceit. That's one of the ways that the Colossians would fall into the trap. One of the ways that we can fall into the trap. The second reason people bought into Gnostic philosophy is because it, it stems from primal and ancient human tradition, Paul says. 
This is very common in cults today. Even the ones that claim like new revelation, that they claim that they've, they've been spoken to and they've received some, some words and they've received some, some, some tablets, they've received some things, right? Like they, they all present their deceptions as originating long, long ago because they're trying to give the impression of longevity and validity to what they believe. So human tradition. The th- third, Paul insinuates that the false teaching is demon-controlled. He says, uh, according, according to the elemental spirits of the world. It's understood that elemental spirits here uh, is actually referring to demonic spirits. Paul argued that, that, that these evil forces were in control of this false doctrine, and, and he wanted to bring the Colossians, that, that these, these spirits wanted to bring the Colossians back into the bondage that, that they knew before Christ. And then lastly, the false Gnostic philosophy is enslaving. Kind of go back to the beginning of the verse. Paul warns them, see to it that no one takes you captive. It's enslaving. It it, it traps you and it it keeps you. The phrase take you captive actually means to carry off. As as prisoners were led away by victorious armies. So, So essentially, Paul is saying stay away from false teaching if you value your life. And so he gives the Colossians and us... Uh, the problem, Gnosticism, he gives us this, this huge problem, and then he gives us a charge, stay away, but how do we do that? When the philosophies they faced and, and the philosophies we face, honestly, are, are so subtly deceitful, they're, they're so logically compelling, they're so enticingly moral, how do we stay away? The only answer is the fullness of Christ, Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of Christ is the answer. Christ is more than Godlike. All right? He he is more than simply overflowing with the character of God, but instead, the essence of God, the complete and total fullness of God, dwells in Christ. And, and that statement alone flies in the face of the Gnostics that believe that fullness comes from lesser gods and, and these angelic mediators. We can see the fullness of God in his work in the heavens and in creation all around us, but in Christ, we see the face of God. Christ is the temple in whom all the divine glories are stored. How can we go anywhere else but to him? This truth is so great that it alone should keep us from being taken captive by deceitful and empty philosophies. But there's something else. Look at your neighbor and say there's something else. There's something else that is utterly breathtaking. Christ, full of deity, full of God, fills us. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Christ can hold all the fullness of God. Now, this may come as a shock to to some of you, but we cannot. But we are full of his fullness. Come on, somebody. That's good news. Okay, let me try to explain with this example. Imagine you are standing at the shore of the Atlantic Ocean, as many of you have already done this summer on vacation. You're standing there, just a a dot, a speck, along the shore of a vast expanse of sea. If you were to take a mason jar and allow the ocean to rush into it, in an instant your jar would be filled with the fullness of the Atlantic Ocean. But... You could never put the fullness of the Atlantic Ocean 
into your jar. Thinking of Christ, we realize that because he is infinite, he can hold all the fullness of God. And whenever one of us finite creatures dips the tiny vessel of our life into him, we instantly become full of the fullness. Are you with me this morning? Our vessel, the the capacity of our container is important though. Our souls are elastic, so to speak, and there are no limits to our potential capacity. We can always open to hold more and more of his fullness. The walls can stretch further. The roof can always raise higher. The floor can always hold more. The more we receive of his fullness, the more we can receive. So Paul, how do we fight against false teachers and philosophies? His answer, with the fullness of Christ. Now shifting over to verses 11 through 15. Paul begins to explain how the Colossians' fullness, and and by implication, of course, our fullness, was accomplished. He starts by explaining that the Colossians were full because being in Christ, they participated in the events of the cross, which which are being uh, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This is so critical to understanding the fullness of God and what it should mean to us. Paul starts by describing their participation in Christ's death in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay. Circumcision is a word that we generally glaze over in scripture because it's kind of odd. It's kind of uncomfortable. We kind of don't want to talk about it. But essentially... Circumcision, as the Colossians would have recognized it, is the cutting away of a small portion of flesh from males on the eighth day after birth. You might know that the idea of circumcision or or cutting something away is used as a metaphor various places in scripture. Now, normally circumcision doesn't refer to death, but here it gives us a gruesome metaphor for the crucifixion. His circumcision on the cross, wasn't the stripping away of a small piece of flesh. Instead, it was the violent removal of his entire body in death. The Colossians now, in him as believers, spiritually shared in this circumcision, this death. Their body of flesh was cut away. They died to their former way of life. After getting the point across that they spiritually participated in Christ's death, he then points out that their uh, he points out their burial with Christ in verse twelve. He says, "Having been buried with him in baptism." Listen to me, church, because the implications here are so important. When Christ's body was circumcised from him in his death on the cross, we were circumcised. We died. Paul said in Galatians 2.20 that he was crucified with Christ. Since we died with him, we no longer have to serve sin. Romans 6 says uh, our, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we, may, uh, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Here it is, church. The old self, the person we were before putting our hope and trust in Jesus, was crucified with Christ. The body of sin, which was a vehicle for sin, is done and gone. 
Here is the fullness that Christ has given us. We are free to live life to its fullest, free from the domination of sin, free from the fear of death, and free from the guilt and shame. But once again, there's more. Look at your neighbor and tell them there's more. This fullness becomes complete by the believer's participation in Christ's resurrection. So we've talked about the death. We've talked about the burial. Now let's talk about the resurrection. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here it is. The resurrection is not in the future. It's now. When we became part of the body of Christ by the baptizing and identifying work of the Spirit, we were baptized into the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have resurrection life now. In fact, we are even seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2, 6 says. We are, the, we are resurrected now. And church, we need to allow this truth to saturate our spirits this morning so it will empower us to, to live as Christ intended. I love this out of Romans 6, starting in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word consider right there means to set our account uh, or to, com to compute. We are to reflect on our position in Christ and then set two things to our account. We are dead to sin and we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. The Colossians had this amazing fullness that was created and maintained by the fact that they actually participated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The, the practical application for us is this. We are to daily set these things to our account, that we died with Christ, that we were buried with him, and that we were resurrected with him. This should come into our minds again and again on a daily basis, and it should change us. It should change how we see things and how we respond to things. This knowledge, this fullness should be evident in our relationships, in our friendships, in our jobs, in our free time, when serving, when giving, when resting. These are powerful truths. Are they helping somebody this morning? Let's finish out this section and see if we can make it to the last part of chapter 2 before we wrap up today. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. One of the most striking things about this verse is the sobering gravity of it. Now, now I know you may not be thinking that. Like the last part is so great. God made us alive with him. He forgave us. Happy days are ahead. But the implications from the beginning is gut-wrenching dead is how Paul describes the spiritual state of every human being who is apart from Christ dead it's not a fun thing to think about I, I love people so much a part of me would rather almost buy into this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism this idea that all good people get into heaven 
Because this is so tough. But this is the truth. This is the tough truth. The spiritual state of every human being who's apart from Christ. Dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, Ephesians 2 says. We were dead. If you don't know Jesus today, you are dead. I'm not going to go all hellfire and brimstone on you, but, but this verse should set off some alarm bells in your head if you don't know him today. Without Christ, we can do nothing to get life. There must be a sovereign communication of life from God. Like when Elijah stretched himself out over the dead boy, his heart beating against the stillness of the boy's chest until it kindled life. Even so, Christ must lay his full life on our deadness, and from there we see new life spring forth. All of us believers here today were once dead, but through Christ, through Christ, church, heart surgery was performed. He didn't just patch up the old heart. We got a new heart. Come on. We were empty, but now we're full. We were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. Where, where once there was death, Fear and hopelessness now resides life, light, and fullness. And we were not only delivered from the bondage of death, but also from the guilt of sin. Let's read a little bit more. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us uh, all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul says that our sin was like a record of debt. An IOU signed by our own hand, promising to obey God. But, but our inevitable lack of obedience brings about our guilt. The Jews, they had the laws, the, the law of Moses in Deuteronomy. The Gentiles, they countersigned to sort of keep the moral law as they understood it in Romans 2. The burden of guilt was piling up. The, the more they and we sinned, the more the record stood against us. But Christ, he took the IOUs. He took our sin and our shame. He took our false promises. He took our self-serving actions and he nailed them to the cross above his head, just as the charges were nailed above him by Pilate. And then, church... And then he forgave us. He completely forgave us. He completely forgave you. He completely forgave me. He canceled our debt. The debt that demanded we pay up. He used legal language here. We had to pay the bill. We had to pay the debt. He did it for us. That's grace, church. That is grace in action. Last verse, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. <clears throat> the rulers and authorities are the demonic powers aligned against Christ and his church with his Fullness, he has delivered us from the bondage of evil powers that would want to separate us from Christ. The, the words that, that Paul uses here and presents in, in this verse, this, this verse conjures up images of a victory parade. 
marching through the streets after a successful battle or, or war with the conquered rulers and authorities put on display for all to see. He's describing a victory lap. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, God the Father achieved a great victory over the evil powers of this world. He put them to open shame. Why would he do that? Because he wants us to see that although they still exist, they are defeated. Satan's demons have been sentenced to be in the train of God's victory parade. Come on, somebody. Therefore, we no longer need to fear the outcome of our battle with evil. Christ has conquered. We have conquered through Christ and we will conquer in the name of Jesus Christ. So church, in view of all of this, why look to anyone else but Christ for fullness? Yeah, okay, have deep human relationships, but don't look for fulfillment in them because they will disappoint you. Pursue your career. Sure, go for it. Have at it. But realize that you won't find the fullness you're looking for there. In Christ, we have everything. The band can go ahead and come on back up because I am out of time today. Scripture is so rich and there's so much I want to tell you about the last eight verses of this chapter, but we're simply not going to have the time today. However, we are on a schedule and there are some others coming to teach in the next few weeks and they already have their passages, their assignments. So we can't afford to honestly fall behind. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the rest of this content to you this week. I'll talk to the team and I'll figure out the best way. Maybe we'll record it as if it were his own message, or, or maybe I'll clean it up and reorganize it into a blog post. Either way, um, around midweek, uh, probably Wednesday or Thursday, we'll make the content available, and it'll be shared through social media and emailed out to the church. The last eight verses uh, of this particular section um, will cover a few ways that people and, and or the enemy try to rob you of your fullness. And it gives you a few specifics on guarding against that. So go ahead and be on the lookout for that this week. We've talked a lot about the fullness of God today. Talked about how that fullness is contained in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are full of his fullness. If you are empty this morning, call out to Christ. Come talk to me during the last song. Go, go talk with someone in the care room right outside the theater door. But don't let yourself go through another day without coming to him. Be born again. Receive life. Be filled. Be delivered. And join the victory parade. Would you pray with me this morning?